0: I sure hope that as we are in a uh, summertime mode, you'll pray for our folks that are gone. Uh, it looks like about a hundred are traveling uh, this week. And so lift them up and ask God to do a neat work in their lives and that every one of them will have a great day uh, today as they worship the Lord and honor Him uh, in the church where they uh, happen to be today. Let me invite your attention to Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. And as I read through this text... Uh, it's hard not to think about the Thai soccer team uh, that has been trapped in that cave for about two weeks. They entered into a cave uh, as an initiation rite for the team and they got stuck. There are monsoon seasons there in Thailand and they have come upon one and it has trapped them in this particular cave. There's been an awful lot of discussion since it hit the news and the Uh, there's been an awful lot of worry and anxiety, of course, as you can well understand, about what in the world are they going to do to rescue these boys. They've contemplated drilling down into the cave uh, from up top, about a half mile into the earth uh, and rescuing them. But what they'd be drilling into is limestone and it's very unstable. Uh, They've contemplated scuba divers into the cave but there's some narrow passages there and it takes 11 hours to get in and 11 hours to get out and these boys uh have uh, been uh struggling with nourishment and their energy is very low and there's some question about whether any of them can swim or um or not and so there there are all sorts of desires uh there's a great desire uh uh to um uh, to, to know about what's going on there, but the greatest desire of all related to these 12 boys is for a solution. Parents want a solution as well, and boys want a solution. Ladies and gentlemen, as we look into 2 Timothy chapter 1, we find a similar circumstance that is actually far more dire than anything this happens to be facing, and that is the human is caught and trapped in its own sin, in a judgment, in a guilty status of its own making, and humans for um, centuries have tried a variety of solutions to fix the problems addressed here in the text, but the world has been thoroughly inadequate and addressed uh, primarily three problems. Uh, one, failure. What do you do with a conscience that is racked by guilt and is traumatized by its own failure? What do you do about poor memories and the uh, horrifying memories of personal failure? But, but then there's also fear. What do you do about fear? That's the anticipation that something ominous is on the horizon and coming to meet us, and it stirs fearful emotions. And then... other side of the grave. None of the world religions and none of the secular philosophies have been able to adequately answer any of these questions until Jesus came. Christ and Christ alone is adequate and sufficient and more than abundant and more than capable of addressing every one of these issues and he does so with his eternal gospel. And Paul will address that, but the heart of of the passage is found in verses 9 through 11. And he talks here that he's not ashamed of this gospel uh, and uh, he suffers for it according to the power of God. And then he describes God beginning in verse 9. He said, He has saved us. And called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I in the church as well was appointed a preacher an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. there are several stages of gospel development found here in the text the first one is in verse 9 where you find in verse 9 um, grace in eternity past that means before you and I ever showed up on the scene before there ever was a heaven and an earth God determined to give those who believe grace in Jesus Christ now is that not a remarkable thing Is that not the most remarkable thing you have ever heard? Before you and I could ever work a religious work, God already decided he would give us grace. That means that his grace does not come as a result of our works or our performance. In fact, he stated that here in the text. Uh, His grace comes out of his own goodness. It's kind of like Dennis the Menace and Joey. They were leaving Mrs. Wilson's house one day. And Joey was stunned. And all the cookies was, Dennis was carrying home. And Dennis explained uh, to Joey, Joey, Mrs. Wilson is does not give us cookies because we're good. He, she gives us cookies because she is good. <laughs> and, and that's what we can say about God. God, before we ever showed up and were able to work a religious work or any kind of... Uh, 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 kind deed determined he would give us grace that that's an eternity past before anything began and then in verse 10 we have an open view of the gospel he said it has now been revealed by the appearing of our savior jesus christ when jesus christ came everything changed when jesus came he made this gospel of grace clear commissioned apostles to communicate it to the world and has perpetuated that through his church down through the centuries. He didn't keep it to himself. And then in verse 9, he summoned us personally. He's called us with a holy calling. He's called us with a sincere calling. He's called us with a calling where he knows everything about us and calls us anyway. He personally confronts us with great care and compassion and power and brings us to himself. And then in verse 10, he punished death. It says there in the text, he is now, it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who's abolished death. Jesus has taken the sting out of death. The power of death is gone. And so no one who knows Christ has any business being intimidated by death. But that's not all. He continues to go. And he says uh, he has revealed life and immortality. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, the way... To have immortality and to have a life beyond the grave has been brought to light in Jesus Christ uh, in what he has done. And then verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. And so it's been transmitted to the world. And so what Paul does here is that he bookends the gospel of Christ that happened in history with truth about eternity. In eternity past, he determined to give us grace and that sees us home for eternity future. Every bit of it. It's all covered up by the grace of God. Ladies and gentlemen, when we sent astronauts to the moon back in the 60s, it cost America $40 billion. It'll cost much more to send them to Mars, but we can get a sinner to heaven for free by the grace of God. Is that not good news? Hey, and there's no other way to get there because we, we don't come with anything that earns merit from God. There's just not enough there on, on the part of any of us. This is the gospel of Christ that brings about solutions to the greatest challenges that humans face. And it never fails. And that's what the Apostle is talking about here. Well, What challenges are we talking about that Christ's gospel provides for? Well the first is this, Christ's gospel provides comfort for your failures. Comfort for your failures. Now who in the world has never experienced the sting of failure? Who is it has never felt the barbed wire of failure come across your stomach? That's how painful failure happens to be. Who who has not experienced some kind of failure? Failure in a personal decision. Uh, Failure vocationally. Failure in relationships. Failure everywhere. Just about every week there's something that confronts us with failure. And it's a miserable, miserable experience. Well, there is a solution to that. One who had been a terrible failure and didn't know it. Uh, expounds on it beginning in uh, verse 1 all the way down to verse number 5. Now if you'll turn a couple pages back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, you'll find something about the Apostle Paul when he gets real humble about what he had been before he met Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor and an insolent man. Towards God, I was a blasphemer. Towards his church with whom he identified, I was a persecutor. And internally, I was an insolent man, a very aggressive and angry person that took it out on others. And he did this justified in his mind by his own faith and his own religion. Well, look what he says of himself beginning in verse 1. What a marvelous and wonderful change has been wrought here. By chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Timothy, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Earlier, his supervisors had sent him to Damascus. Now Jesus is sending him into the world with the good news. Uh, Then he does it according to the will of God. Earlier, he was opposed to the will of God, thinking he was fulfilling it. So he was terribly deceived. And now he's actually doing the will of God and is perpetuating the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he does it according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Beforehand he had done it according to his understanding of the law, but now he has life in Christ Jesus. This is the change that came upon the Apostle Paul. Now he goes on and talks about Timothy and the change that came upon him. Timothy, if you'll read Acts chapter 16, had a Christian mother who was a Jew. But his father was a pagan Greek. And look what Paul says, something meaningful in verse number 2. He said to Timothy, a beloved son. Now some of you know all about that. You had parents that didn't know the Lord or one did not. And someone came and shared the good news with you. And you came to Christ. And someone in your church became a spiritual parent to you. You became a son or you became a daughter in the Lord because of their work with you. And they filled that role for you. This is what Paul did for Timothy because his own dad was not available. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on to describe Timothy's faith. It's something that stirred his heart uh, to where it resulted in uh, tears. And and then in verse 5, he said, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. What a grand statement to make about Timothy. He's got genuine faith and it's very, very clear that that is what he has because Paul can actually see it. Who in the world do you know that knows Christ in such a way that you can say with certainty, enough certainty to record it in the New Testament, that they have genuine faith? Well, that's the kind of faith that Timothy had in Christ. And it first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Now, that's a remarkable thing. Timothy was probably 14, 15 years old when he was converted and went with Paul. He's a middle school boy and listening to his grandmother and mother. And he's persuaded that it was in him also. So this is what you have with Paul and with Timothy. They have a radical change of identity before Jesus Christ. Do you know that when you come to Jesus Christ, your identity radically changes? You're no longer a guilty sinner. We continue to sin. Don't misunderstand me. Oh, we do. But the identity changes and we become children and heirs of Almighty God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so, as you stand before God, you stand before God as a new creation. It, it's like you're a whole new person before God. And God views you differently, as if you had no past and only a future. All the old offenses are passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says that in Christ Jesus we're no longer slaves but sons, and if sons, then heirs. And so, all those that have come to Jesus Christ have been elevated to that Status where we're exalted and lifted up before God to such an extent that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so there's comfort here in our failures. Listen, the moment you come to Jesus Christ, your failures are a bigger problem for you than they are God. God eliminates them all. He does so in such a fashion, it's as if they were never there. And so they're a bigger problem for you than they are for God. The moment you come to him and give yourself to him in Jesus Christ. In other words, God knows every one of the skeletons in your closet and he loves you anyway. And that will never, ever change. Ladies and gentlemen, that solves 10 million problems for the human soul. There's comfort in every one of your failures. Oh, but that's not all. It gets better. There is also courage in your fears. And he talks about this in verses 6 through uh, 11. Read there with me. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles." There are a couple of fears here. One is the fear of service. Timothy is deathly afraid he'll not be effective. Timothy is probably afraid he's going to be ridiculed or misunderstood or opposed in the church of Ephesus. But look at the remedy for that in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. So God gives us power to fight fear in our service. The very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, is present with every believer that he or she may face the challenges of service. So there's power, and then there's love. Whenever you serve the Lord, the, the Lord loves you, and he loves those that you're ministering to. Now, he doesn't love us because we're serving. He loved us long before we're ser- we serve. And he loves us long after. But his love is never ending. It endures forever. And so when you're serving God, he intervenes with great love to work through you and to work on those to whom you are serving. So power and love and then a sound mind. In other words, you can have a sound mind when you're making decisions for Christ about your service. You can do it right. You can do it well. Paul will go so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. We have access to the very thinking and and mental calculations of Jesus Christ. And so every decision you and I make can actually replicate the very mind of Jesus Christ. We don't always do that and we, we, we regret that we fail. But that is available and if there's failure that takes place, It has nothing to do with the gift and grace of God. That's not on God at all. And so in the place of fear, there's power, love, and a sound mind. God intervenes and battles all the challenges of service. But then there is also salvation. And it's complete from eternity to eternity in verses 9 through 11. And so uh, salvation from beginning to end is secured in him. And so what God does then is that he bestows enormous grace with every fear that we end up facing. Enormous grace. Now here's what grace is. Uh, the, the gospel of grace is this. It says that I can have, God has given to me, all I can have of his blessing. And anything in his will I can do. Any of his blessing I can have, any of his will I can do because of the gospel of grace. In other words, nothing is excluded. And so all the blessings God has intended for me to have in this life have been purchased by the gospel of grace. And anything God wants me to do in his will can be done. I don't have to be a weak failure. I don't have to fear these things. I can be effective for his name. John one sixteen says of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. One grace stacked on top of the other. Jesus said in, uh, in John ten ten, uh, the uh, thief comes not but to still kill and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He would say in Ephesians 1 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and pay attention to the tenses has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and then second peter 1 3 his great power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness every christian person who seeks to trust and follow the lord can be used of god and they have no reason to be afraid of the challenges of service at all now how do i get in on this Well, it's really pretty simple, but but ironic. While you have everything available to you if you know and follow Christ, you've got to admit this one thing I'm nothing. I don't have what it takes. Jesus said in Matthew 5:3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Spiritually, God, I'm bankrupt, I'm busted. I'm overdrawn. I don't have what it takes to be used by you. I don't have what it takes to obey you. Despite my best efforts, despite what what I've tried to do, I don't have what it takes. And if this is going to work, and if I'm going to make you look good, which is the fire and passion of my heart, God, you're going to have to come through. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but what? But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, what God expects of you, he expects of the Jesus Christ who is in you. And so every bit of service, every bit of suffering, every bit of sacrifice that God calls for and commands in his word is something he expects of the Jesus Christ that lives in those who know him. Hey, folks, there's no reason to be afraid. We can have courage in our fears, comfort in our failures, and then... The last section of chapter 1 teaches us that Christ's gospel provides confidence in your future. John Stott remarks that most of us are, uh, we hate to admit it, but probably more sensitive to public opinion and pressure than what we would like to admit. He tells of the story when the um, famous uh, folk and pop singer Paul Simon came by to visit with him. He found out that he could, and he came by to visit with John Stott. Uh, and uh, sat down and spoke with him and soon in the conversation began to complain about all the Christians the high profile Christians uh, he knew that he didn't like and he called their names and after a little while Stott interrupted him he said well really to be honest with you I'm more interested in what you think of Jesus Christ that's a great statement for someone complaining about Christians and the condition of the church "I, I, I really am more interested to know what you think of Jesus Christ. Stott was courageous at that point. He was confident in communicating the gospel and turning the conversation immediately to Jesus Christ. He does that in verses 12 through 18 and essentially he says, frankly, when it comes to the gospel of Christ, the natural outflow of that is to take a risk. Now from God's perspective, It's really not risky at all. But from an ordinary human perspective, it can appear to be a great big risk. And that's how I would summarize verses 12 through 18. Uh, Let's ask a few questions about this risk. What is it? Well, look at verses 13 and 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So hold fast and keep. Hold fast and keep. In other words, this good news that Jesus Christ has given to us, hold on to it. Don't let it go. Don't back down. Don't shut up. Don't back up. Don't be silent. Hold fast to it. In fact, this can be such a challenge. You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. And that's what he says here in the text. And so hold fast and keep it. Um, now, where might we find challenges to that very thing? We'll look at verse 15 to 18. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Now, if you remember your history from the book of Acts, you will remember that Paul spent three years in Asia planting churches. And these churches would show up in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor, which have received an awful lot of attention through the centuries and should. Paul planted those churches and some others in Asia Minor. But when he came upon a time of trial, and at this point he's in a Roman prison, having to defend himself, None of those would identify with him. They turned from him. They became embarrassed. Well, you know, Paul, he's taking this a bit too seriously. He's a fanatic, ultra conservative, he's a fundamentalist, he's intolerant, he's bigoted. They had all sorts of names and justifications for the apostle. And, and he's saying they all turned. He planted their churches, and now they're engaging in disloyalty to him. And among them, in verse 15, are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now there's one who didn't Onesiphorus. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, so the whole house, because he often refreshed me. In other words, Onesiphorus acted in a godly fashion, and God blessed his whole household because of it. He was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he did for Paul what God's doing for you. And that is, he sought me out very zealously and found me. And that's what the Lord's doing with you now. Onesiphorus did it for Paul. Instead of being ashamed, he was zealous and publicly identified himself with the Apostle Paul. So here we find that there is some risk. Uh, It involves holding fast and keeping faithful to the word that God has delivered. Uh, We find challenges uh, among the faithless and the faithful. The faithless because they turn. The faithful because they're taking a risk too. That's a challenge. Now why? Why should we take a risk for Christ? Look at verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless... I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. One reason why we should be uh, uh, willing to take a risk and hold fast and keep faithful to his word. One reason. And that is assurance. God is going to be faithful and we are assured of that when it comes to our future now there's power to assurance whenever you're assured God is going to be faithful to you about his future promise of eternal life look look what Paul says he can do for this reason I also suffer these things and nevertheless I'm not ashamed so this gives us the power to suffer and not be ashamed at all because there's something greater on the horizon promised by God and then there's the basis of it the basis of assurance I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able. The truth is, we don't keep God. God keeps us. We don't keep ourselves secure. He keeps us secure. That's the basis. The scripture never cast your attention to yourself or your behavior or your performance for any degree of assurance. Oh, you can test your faith that way. But when it comes to assurance and God holding on to you, it has everything to do with God and God himself. And ladies and gentlemen, what work God has begun in you, he is able to keep it until the final day. And so that's the basis. But then there's also the way. He says this, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded He is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. In other words, Paul has committed himself to Christ. Now, do you understand the word commit? Usually that amongst us can stir images of new action. And I understand that, but that's not the way the word is used here. Uh, Another translation would be what I have entrusted to him against that day. In other words, whatever I have entrusted to him, my soul, my eternity, my hopes, he can keep it until the final day, is what he's saying. Uh, It's much like what you do with the paycheck when you deposit it into the bank. Or if you've ever entrusted a child to someone to care for that child, you've entrusted them with that. And Paul is saying what we've done with the paycheck and what we've done with children, what we've done with doctors, with our health, I have done that with Jesus Christ because I believe him and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And and that's the basis of it. Uh, In other words, ladies and gentlemen, entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ is the only thing that can give you assurance in him. And that's what God's calling for. You see, with a message like this, some would think, you know, I'm not very certain about my place in heaven. I don't know if God's going to let me make it. I examine all my behaviors, and quite frankly, I'm discouraged. In fact, I'm a little insecure about it. I I want to encourage you. Don't think that way. We're all in that shape. You do not look at your behavior. You look at the behavior of Jesus Christ and ask yourself, is the behavior of Jesus Christ enough to make me secure with God? Well, I look at that, and I've got to tell you, there's nothing but encouragement there. And all God calls for is entrusting yourself into Him. And so we're, we're made secure and we're made right with God by the work and the behavior of Jesus Christ as outlined in verses 9 through 11. One man said, I would not trust my best 15 minutes on earth to get me to heaven or make me right with God. And I wouldn't either. Not at all. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to say here is, once you receive Christ as Savior and have his gift of salvation, you can never, ever lose it. I understand some don't agree with that, but I've got to say to you, on the basis of verse 12, that's a very solid conclusion from the text. And I would go so far as to say that if you could lose your salvation, you would. Oh, we would. And only the most self-righteous or naive would ever conclude otherwise. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Once we are saved, we are always saved and safe. God's gift of salvation is precisely that. It is a gift. It's not a loan. He does not give it to us on the installment plan. It's not like a mortgage or a car loan, where if you fail to make a payment, it's in danger of being repossessed. Whenever God gives the gift of salvation, he gives it in total. And the moment he gives it, we are in total possession of the gift. In other words, he entrusts it to us because we have entrusted ourselves to him. It's a complete and it's a total gift. Charles Spurgeon said, the glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin has ever made him un." faithful so listen to me you can risk everything on earth because there's no longer any risk in heaven before god you can risk things with humans because now in jesus christ there's no longer any risk with god god has completely eliminated the risk and made the future confident and that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to our service Back in the 30s, I believe 1937, when the Golden Gate Bridge was being constructed, they early on had a problem with workers falling off to their death. In fact, uh, they lost 23 uh, workers uh, to death uh, falling off the Golden Gate Bridge until they placed a net under it. And after they did, uh, 10 more fell, but they fell into the net and were safe. But because they had a net, these workers were 25% faster and more productive in their work. They had security and they did their work quicker and they were far more productive. And the same is true for the people of God. You can risk on Jesus Christ because he can make you eternally secure in him. And so listen, the biggest step And the biggest hurdle you will usually face in making things right with God is this. Stop looking to yourself and trusting yourself. And start trusting Him. If it were all up to you, you'll never make it. God has made it all up to Jesus. And the moment you place faith in Him, God transfers all of that to your account. And that's the biggest challenge you'll have. Or in biblical language, repent and believe. Stop looking to yourself. Stop trusting yourself. Stop trying to change on your own. Stop trying to make eternity safe on your own. Stop turning over leaves. You need a whole new tree. Stop it. And start trusting the death and resurrection of Christ and his good favor with the Father. And he'll let you get on in on it the moment that you do. Uh, Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. The scripture promises, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And therein is found the eternal security. And I want us to pray about it then.